This episode has language not suitable for little ones, so if you're listening with others, we have a cleaned up, beeped version available. Just subscribe and you'll see it on the feed. Okay, here's the show. Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast. My name is Annie Mack and this is Changes. This is a place where I'm going to be speaking to a host of fascinating people about the word change about how it can completely derail us and very quietly end up defining exactly who we are. I'm going to be talking to people about the changes they have had to navigate in their lives, where the changes came from, how they climbed over them and under them and through them and how they kind of turned out on the other side of them. So for episode one, I'm so excited to bring you the force of nature that is Catelyn Moran. Catelyn Moran, if you if you don't know her professionally, she is a really, really, really celebrated journalist and writer. So she is a columnist for The Times. Uh, she is a feminist, well-known, and an author of many books. She wrote the best-selling How to Be a Woman and uh, recently wrote the screenplay of her best-selling book How to Build a Girl into a film, which stars Beanie Feldstein and Alfie Allen, and that's going to be streamed in May, so streamed this month. Loads of other books. She's going to tell us in this conversation about all the other books she's writing. And just a really interesting life, not the typical life of a journalist from The Times. You will hear about her life now. She's going to tell us all about it. But yeah, I wanted to get her on personally because she was the one who really sealed the deal for me in realising that I was a feminist. So many people, upon reading her book, How to Be a Woman, both men and women, were kind of explained in a very non-snobby way, in a very kind of accessible and real way about what it is to be a feminist, uh, about equality in the world and and what it should look like. And after reading that, I was 100% a Catelyn Moran kind of advocate in terms of her as a person, as a writer and her beliefs. And I've been kind of following her closely ever since I read that book. She's amazing on Twitter. She's very, very, very funny. And uh, she has a whole legion of fans all over the world for her personality and for her writing. So I thought we would get her over here to my house, to the rave shed. And she got over just in the nick of time. It was literally the week before lockdown. It was the last Friday of school happening. And um, she came over with her vape and her flask of tea. And we sat at opposite ends of the sofa in my rave shed. And we really had it out. There was nothing out of bounds in this conversation. We talked about being a mother of daughters. We talked about, we talked a lot about porn, actually, which wasn't planned, but that's how it went. So it was predictably fun and fabulous, as one would expect with an hour of Catelyn Moran's time. And I'm going to hand over to her now. So let's do it. Enter the podcast. Catelyn Moran. Annie, I love your little shed. This is so cute. This is your hideaway. This is the rave shed. This was this was clearly the priority in the building. I was like, it's a lovely kitchen. It's a beautiful bathroom. But where's the bit where you fuck off away from the kids? Oh, here it is. The, the bit that's the colour of a vagina. Yes. And is at the end of the garden and has a big thick curtain that you cross where no one can see you. And some chunky double glazing. So no one needs to know about your base. Totally soundproofed. Yes. Uh, Catelyn Moran 
What the fuck is going on? I know, right? Well, I mean, on a, on a very macro, is it macro or micro level, what's going on at the moment is I am having a period so intense. Oh, me too. You might sync with me. Oh, God, you, we've already synced. We're this synced. is it. Yeah, like, like I actually said to my friend yesterday, I think I'm being punished for something. Like, it, it's the worst period I've ever had. Do you know that thing about it being alternate ovaries? So you tend to have a good ovary and a bad ovary. So like kind of you, it's on alternate sides. So one month it will be the left one and one month it will be the right. And I've noticed my right ovary every other month is the, the sad, painful, weepy, oh my God, it's the end of the world period. And then yeah. my left period's more of a kind of, hey, feeling quite sensual, feeling in touch with the world yeah. kind of sort of period. So you're on your right? I'm on my right at the moment, oh yeah. Oh my God, I'd never heard of alternative ovaries. I know, I right? a lot to learn. Great name for a band. <laughs> incredible <laughs> okay so we're synced yes yeah yeah so and are you day one kind of whoa waking up what the hell is going on here or yeah i do you know what here's my problem my problem is that i haven't managed to accept the realness of what's going on yes because i'm still going to work mm-hmm. i'm still driving to work in the evenings and doing radio the kids are still in school as of today shit's gonna get real next week yes um but also because i haven't seen anyone or come across anyone who's been ill yet yes obviously because you know no one close to me thank god has has had to get the virus so i just haven't been able to accept the realness of it yet i'm sure it will come well i'm in a weird uh, me and a couple so basically my family we were taught at home by hippie apocalypse yeah um we're gonna get to that who absolutely believed in the end of the world so it's really weird all the hypochondriacs that i know are like well i always knew this was going to come like a big virus so like they feel oddly calm because the thing Mm. they've always feared a gigantic illness has come and they've spent their entire lives preparing for it and thinking about it now everybody feels like them and similarly if you were brought up by parents who were always telling you about the end of the world and the breakdown of society and that and literally teaching you how to fight for the carcass of the last rat um (laughs) often during a christmas lunch (laughs) became quite tearful then like you know from the age of like four our parents are like and when you get the five minute warning for the bomb we're going to drive to wales we'll live in a hedge will make a bivouac oh these are the roots God. that you can dig up here's how you look for a root source when you're looking at a map this is where you can work out what the best terrain is you want to be in a woodland even wow. british woodland is like um it's like the british rainforest there are so many resources there you don't want to be on a hillside so i'm kind of oddly calm about this because i've spent my entire life being ready for this but it's really annoying though because in the night because we were brought up believing in the end of the world and then the 90s came and I just spent it kind of going hey it's the end of history and everything's brilliant and it's all centrist politics and we're yeah. all raving and it's all amazing and lager lager shouting my parents were wrong <laughs> and now 20 years later I'm like my dad was right the whole time the I know time. all along and there's nothing worse than finding out your parents were right are, you, are your parents still around <laughs> they are yes and they're fully prepared what do they think they're, they're just like sitting there going told you so yeah, so like, yeah. the biggest I told you so ever I know which, which is for me the hardest thing of this entire crisis kind of having to admit my parents are right but I am an optimist so so a I've always been prepared for this and b I've got two teenage girls and they are and I didn't raise them to believe in the end of the world okay. which possibly was a mistake I realize now because they're really wigging out so I've had to sit down and say to them I know this seems awful and I'm not underplaying the awfulness people will die like kind of businesses yeah. are going to end the economy mm-hmm. is going to be affected this is going to change society forever but what's happening at the moment when something this big happens that is like a war and a global war that everybody's engaged in is that it's like opposites day. It's a mm. massive reset button. Mm. Like things, opportunities for change for the better are going to come along now that mm. we just had never thought of before. Mm. So for instance, let's start with the good things because you know, I've got two kids wigging out. I was like, okay, let's look at the environment. Like we've already seen those pictures of Venice and the fish swimming in the now clear waters. We've seen the swans have returned. There are dolphins in the bays in... I uh, saw- in the Mediterranean yeah. now because the ferries aren't running so all the dolphins have come back 
things that the kids have been marching for for three years with the Extinction uh, Rebellion are literally happening now. We're going to yeah. hit our C- CO2 emissions easily. Are we? Yeah, wow. already. Like, already wow. pollution is halved. Wow. Does that start in China and in Italy? The amount of people that would have died from air pollution in the last couple of months would have been more than the amount of people that have died from this virus. Wow. So environmentally, we're on a reset. So mm. That's kind of amazing. Then secondly, societally suddenly everything's changed what we prioritize in people like kind of like until like even a month ago we were still really into contrarians and controversialists and people mm. who were kind of like oh you you know snowflakes and kind of like i've got mm. my hot take kind of people who are enjoying being professional assets people who enjoy being agent provocateurs yeah. people who are all about individualism and kind of yeah i'm just going to say what i say and if anybody you know yeah. you just got to deal with that i just say what i think that suddenly sounds awful. Yeah. People with that tone of voice who have that kind of worldview suddenly seem wildly out of whack with the people who are forming WhatsApp groups in local places and going, I will get you toilet paper, I will go to the shops right. for you and I will get you yeah. tin tomatoes. Like there are so many things that like, I mean, it, you know, it depends on like, you know, your, your political point of view or what your upbringing is or whatever. But things that I hold dear that I had thought were under threat. So for instance, the, the BBC, like until recently, right. did seem to be under threat. People were going, it should be like a Netflix model. People yeah. had forgotten the importance of the BBC. In times like this, the BBC can do stuff that no one else can do. They've right. immediately put all of the GCSE and A-level stuff online. They are the source that people turn to for information. They've completely mm-hmm. changed all of their scheduling. And you remember that what the importance of having a public broadcaster, they can yeah. do stuff that no other broadcaster can do. This yeah. podcast is all about change. Mm-hmm. And I asked you to kind of think about two changes before you came, one in your kind of childhood and one in your adult life. So the the big one for childhood was being taught at home. So in 1986, so I'm the eldest of eight children. And in 1986, our parents decided they were going to start home educating the kids. So I went to school until I was 11. And then my sister, who's two years younger than me, went until she was nine and so on down. So the last three never went to school. And... When people hear about this, they're like, so did your parents have these amazing sort of educational beliefs? Were they the kind of home educators who went, life should be a learning opportunity. And if we go for a nature walk, we should be using that chance to teach our children about geology and geometry and kind of, you know, and and physics and the weather and everything's a learning opportunity. And actually, we can educate our children more if they're not in school, not less. That's one kind of home educator. And then the other kind of home educators are people who just literally cannot be bothered to find, at at that point, eight pairs of pants and eight pairs of socks on children. But wasn't it, like, from a parental point of view, right, as someone who is about to start homeschooling my children... Good luck. Yeah, reasonably excited after about five days, I know I'll go insane. (laughs) But, like, surely it's a lot more work for them just having you guys around in the day. Well, you'd think, wouldn't you? Uh, No, (laughs) No. I mean, they were very... So there was, was, and I think there still is an an organisation called Education Otherwise that sort of, like, out of the hippie movement sort of got together because there were quite a few parents home educating. And they talked about this process called de-schooling, that once you come out of the school system, you're so used to being told what to do and so used to doing things for no purpose. It's just like, you, you will write this thing today and it needs to be... 600 words and that's just the thing you have to do there's no mm. reason to do it you just that's literally the work you have to do today that once you come out of school you're a bit lost you're like well suddenly I've got nothing to do I don't need to do these things and kids tend to go a bit crazy for a bit and they don't want to do work for the first six months or so and the the, the advice that education otherwise gave was just just let them let them de-school let children so totally sort of right. detox wow. from the idea of being told what to do and for the first six months it's a bit crazy because kids just don't want to do anything and they just fight and they just lounge around and you think, oh my God, what's going to happen? Are my kids never going to do anything else? And then 
at a certain point, once they've detoxed and the idea of being told what to do, kids finally rediscover their own curiosity because mm. kids want to learn stuff. That's what the little baby animals just want to learn stuff. They pick <laughs> things up and they want to do things with it. And when they find the things they love, you never need to tell them to stop. You never mm. need to like tell them that they need to revise or work on something because they'll just be up till three o'clock in the morning. Like, so can you remember that point when that happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. We'd, we'd spent six months just watching classic MGM musicals right. um, and, and putting on a lot of weight. It was as if we were preparing for the apocalypse. There was a different sense of like lay down a layer of fat now because we yeah. weren't doing games or, or, or any kind of exercise. We'd invented the cheese lollipop, which was our first big invention, which is a fork with a lump of cheese on the end of it, yeah. which allows you to, to lick cheese like a lollipop because you need to fill those hours and licking cheese suddenly is that'll take you a good two hours and if you lick cheese you find that it does breaks it actually down. disintegrate well what happens is interesting because you you work you as you lick it first of all you take out the liquids like the whey like elements yeah so the so gradually it turns into like little nuggets of kind of pure fat and salt which are then crunchy oh, so that's yeah. quite yeah and i can still remember kind of like a crisp it. yes yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. you you will get to know how to dissemble cheese in your mouth listen so. guys this is great tips for for everyone at home at the moment <laughs> I love it. Then we invented the cheese on cheese sandwich, which was a slice of cheese with a slice of cheese and then a slice of yeah, cheese on top. Yeah, my kid does that. Yeah, yeah. You can never have too much cheese, right? right. Yeah. But then, but then there does come a point where like kids just want to learn things. Mm. They will just go and teach themselves. And the, the whole idea about home education for many home educators is self-education. Kids will teach themselves. So what did you do to do that? Did you go to the library? We went to the library. The one thing they did was they would take us to the library twice a day because oh. they were very worried that someone might have brought a book back in the interim that we would want and wow. so it was like go back just in case some new books have come in so we would go there twice a day and get books then we started making magazines we started putting on plays wow. um so the ones who were less interested in the arts then started studying sort of maths and physics they went to they did open university courses and then went to adult education centers later so my brother jimmy who was still illiterate till the age of 11 um managed to do all of his gcses and a levels in a year and went to cambridge Oh my god! Yeah, from a, I mean, he literally was illiterate at eleven. He'd done nothing until that point, apart from muck about and put on plays with us, and then went to Cambridge. And then he was like, "Okay, I want to, I want to learn now." Yeah, just like, and he, you know, he was, he, he just knew how to motivate himself, and just went off and did it. God, that's amazing. I know he's so very clever. It's he's the clever, handsome one of so our family. Impressive. Yeah. Right. So, so that's how how you got through actual the education. But what about the social side of it? Well, that's the downside. Okay. So, educationally, time and time again, the people that I meet who are home educated, like, there's another thing, like when people talk about particularly in the arts lots of people go I find it really hard to get motivated like kind of find it really hard to sit down and work every day like kind of mm. that's the big thing so novelists are always sort of complaining like oh god so hard to sit down and work everyone I know who's been home educated just doesn't understand that because we've always been self-motivated we've always set our own targets okay so it that's just very easy so that that's the, the the good thing is you have this magic ability to never worry about work it just happens you sit down you do it that's you know yeah. it, it's brilliant the bad side is you tend to have crippling social anxiety yeah because all those things that human beings learn particularly in their adolescence just aren't available to you like for instance crushes at school right i could not have a crush a school crush because it would have been my brother or sister, we're experimenting with my sexuality. So you're kind of... So then you're just fancying, for me, all of the three amigos in the film, the three amigos, and just trying to work out if it was Chevy Chase, Martin Short, or Steve Martin that I fancied the most. So these crushes become quite real. <laughs> so, so you... So at what point were you able to... Like, can you remember the first time you made a proper friend? 
beyond a sibling? Because yeah. I know siblings are your, your yes, friends, right? Yeah. Um, when I, so I moved down to London on my 18th birthday. Wow. I'd made a pact with all my siblings because it was a very small house. It's three bedroom council outside Wolverhampton. And all my younger siblings were like, look, we love you and we care for you and it's great seeing you and socialising with you, but... There is a bit of a crush on space, so promise us you'll leave on your 18th birthday because uh, your 18th birthday is the first time you're legally allowed to get an overdraft from the bank. So on the morning of my 18th birthday, my dad wow. took me to the bank. I got the maximum overdraft that you're legally allowed to have at the age of 18, which is £2,000. And I took my Alsatian dog and a bin bag full of clothes and my laptop uh, and moved into a house in London. And at the time, because I was working for Melody Maker as a, as a music journalist and I'd got a column on the Times which is amazing and incredibly mm. lucky. But at the time, you could rent a three-bedroom house, which is what I had, in Camden for £180 a week with a garden. Mm. And oh. I was living in a house opposite Morrissey. So I'd gone from a council house in Wolverhampton to London, and I would sit out on the front doorstep every day smoking a menthol cigarette because they're the sophisticated cigarettes. Of course, the skinny ones. And watching... Morrissey would leave the house every day and cycle off on a bicycle. And then often he would cycle past on his bicycle. And then Alan Bennett, who lived around the corner, would cycle past on his wow. bicycle. Wow. And, and it was like being in what like a Harry Potter the musical. <laughs> just kind of like, it's like, wow, this is what London's like. Wow, okay. <laughs> so I moved down, and my, the first friend I made was um, the band Lush. I don't know if you remember the band yeah, Lush. Yeah. Phil, their bass player, who at the time was 32, he was equally socially awkward. And we yeah. would see each other at gigs, and we just became friends. Like, wow. kind of, it was. And did you know what to do? Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, as you're saying about yeah. school, about you, you kind of learn how to behave in order to maintain a friendship or you court a friendship or whatever. That's so true. So right. at school, and you would see how teenagers became friends in a school environment and do what they did. I don't know, like play games in the playground together. Right, or yeah. what, I don't know what you do at school. I've seen it on Grange Hill, so I presume that's what you were all doing. <laughs> but obviously I was in an adult environment, in a rock and roll environment, in a Britpop environment, and what all the adults were doing was drinking incredibly heavily and yeah. constantly smoking. So yeah. that was what I thought you did to be a grown-up. So I was, I don't think I socialised with someone without drinking until I was in my 40s wow. like kind of because that was the template the first day I worked at Melody Maker the first time I went in I thought I was 16 and I was like they're going to be grown up so I'm going to impress them with how grown up I are I are <laughs> I are going to impress them with how grown up I are that was about the level I was on and uh, I turned up um, in my dress with a rucksack and I brought it was 11 o'clock editorial meeting and I brought out a bottle of Southern Comfort and a packet of cigarettes and just like banged the Southern Comfort down on the table and was like so guys we're going to do shots it's a meeting and they all looked at me like yeah that's not actually what grown ups do <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, this leads us really nicely into the film, right? Yes. When is it out, by the way? Is it out already? Well, no. I mean, it's all a hoo-ha and a palaver because because all the cinemas are closing, Shit. so we don't know. Oh, my God. I know. I'm so sorry. I never even thought of that factor for I know, it. I know. So, like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's as, as Duran Duran said in Ordinary World, this is but a little sorrow. In a, in a, in a world of holy war and holy greed, this you is but a little sorrow. Right? It will just wait. Well, right? we don't know. I mean, there's, there's several options. We were going to have our premiere at Glastonbury. This is what we were going to... Oh. What we we're going to announce this week, we were going to have a proper, the first ever film premiere at Glastonbury with red carpet and everything. Oh my god, that would have been amazing! So, um, so yeah, so we at the moment it's still scheduled for July the 3rd, um, but who knows what will happen. Okay. And I'm hoping it will come out, or maybe we could stream it, I don't even know, but um, mm. it's the right film for these times because it's just so nostalgic and mm. so sweet. It's um, it's, it's so feel good, it really is, but also, I cried. I oh, really have you seen cried. it? Yeah, I, oh they sent me the screener. Oh I know, God. I know. I watched it in bed. <laughs> I cried when Johanna was in hospital and her mummy came to see her. Um, I gosh. cried then. 
that yeah. that's based on some a, true events. Trembly lip. Yeah. Is it? I was I was interested in that. Yeah, that's because if you are 16 and you end up in hospital for self-harming or whatever reasons, you will be put on a children's ward and there's something there's something yeah. so poignant about the that to me is like the whole essence of being 16 in a nutshell. Right. You're in this adult world dealing with these adult emotions and these adult problems and these things that'll happen to you, but they'll still put you on a children's ward where clown entertainers will come in and do magic tricks for you mm. and you will have you know people dressed up as fairies and stuff entertaining you even though you've just been out in this wild rock and roll world doing all these mm. doing all these crazy things yeah I've, i find that scene really poignant i cry on that one as yeah. well because that's that's and then and then like it's just so you and everything that how you approach the world in the idea of the cuts <laughs> yes <laughs> the so cuts she, that she made that literally happened we had to change it so like kind of um because i mean it's the thing is, I believe in talking about things like self-harming and eating mm. disorders because if you keep them secret and shameful and dark, it makes them worse. It like does. Kind of, it gives them power. Totally. Mm. And like, and if you've got a shameful secret, like, because, you know, something, you know, all of these things are coping methods. Mm. And so if you're doing something to cope, but you can't even talk about your coping method, you, you've got a coping method because you couldn't talk about the thing that was upsetting you. Right. And then you can't talk about the coping method that you've got either suddenly you're just locked into a world where you can't talk about it at all and and particularly as a former self-harmer I believe that you have to you know you need to be able to have humor for it as mm-hmm. well you need to be able to own that and make jokes about it because then it becomes your story that you're telling right. rather than people pointing at you and going you were a self-harmer you go yes for instance when I was a self-harmer when I was 16 the first time I did it I kind of slashed at myself a bit and didn't really look at what I was doing and then when I looked down it looked like I had slashed the letters NWA into my <laughs> arm <laughs> and like I was such a fan of this band that I had carved NWA like unconsciously yeah. just graffitied your favourite yes. band logo and I didn't really know that much about them but I thought if this scars permanently and I've got NWA on Could my arm worse. forever I'm now going to have to so I had to go to the library and get out their entire back catalogue <laughs> so oh. that I could post-facto rationalise this thing. Yeah. So in the film, we make it U2 because we figured not as many people might know about NWA. Um, but that was that was a true story. Like wow. you kind of, when you're self-harming, you don't think about what your scars might look like later. Yeah. So, so this film, How to Build a Girl, based on a book, which is based on your life. Is that fair to say? Well, Semi. legally, what we have to say is right. that it's a fiction. So right. that, but, 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 but I mean, it's about 80% true, yes. And, and how do you build your life into a film in terms of, you know, what you omit and what you include? Like the decision making process in that, because, you know, there's less siblings in the film. Yes. How did you make those decisions? It's looking at the book, which is a brilliant thing to be able to do and go, which of these stories am I going to pick? And the, the story that I... I thought was most relevant to our times in the, in the book and and indeed it happened to me in real life is that when I first became a rock critic I was 16 I was working for a, a music magazine and I was probably the only 16 year old girl in this country that had a national platform to write about her right. opinions on things yeah. and I went through a very recognisable arc in that I started off being really cheerful and like I love these bands hurrah for Crowded House hurrah into Ray I love pop music <laughs> hurrah for Erasure and then cool boys were like well that's not the cool stuff we're kind of into this darker stuff and like and you should be a bit more cynical and maybe like take some bands down because you just sound like you just said at one point I was told you sound like a mad teenage fan and I was like but I am a mad teenage fan that's why I want to write about it but you're surrounded by this cynicism so you you, you, you're like okay well if this is the game being cynical and horrible then I'll be better than all of you so I then became the most horrible journalist for a while uh, which culminated in a review of the band Ned's Atomic Dustbin Mm. from Stourbridge local to me in Wolverhampton wherein I imagined that it was their funeral and that I was the priest carrying out the final rites over their grave and throwing 
soil onto their faces as I recited wow. what a failure their career. So you had were been. too good at being bad I in was that way. The worst Your imagination bitch. was too good. But here's what I what I, what I was thinking whilst watching the film because you're rooting for Johanna, i.e., loosely based on you. And you're watching her have to make this transition to kind of demonic, you know. Yeah, super bitch. Uh, yeah, super bitch. Yeah, right. And and you're kind of you're going you're kind of shouting, no, 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 you don't need to do this. But you're also so aware of her youth yes. and her vulnerability and her naivety mm. in amongst these older posh pricks, basically. Yes. And and it just made me think, like, if that that was you back in the day, like. Do you look back now and be like, fuck, I was so uh, vulnerable in that way? Oh, God, t- I mean, I was a child surrounded by adults. Right, yeah. like, and, you know, I would never let my kids do that now. But like, but that was the reason why, and the reason why I want to write the book and the film is that I was, all the teenage films and books that I read when I was growing up were all about how if you're a teenage girl, you've got to have your friends and you've got you have your best girlfriends. Mm. And once you found your girlfriends in your gang, that's it, you'll be safe and they'll look after each other and it's best friends forever. And lots of teenage girls don't have friends they don't have a gang and I always wanted to write things for girls who are alone for girls who are and I realise that now at 44 your teenage self is the mother to you now Mm. so I look at my teenage girl self going out there doing these things and you know there's there's quite a fad for kind of like oh I was such an idiot when I was younger or what a dick Mm. I was or like look what I was wearing oh such a fool I disowned Mm. myself I would never disown my teenage self because she was so brave and everything that I've got was down to this little girl on her own going out there and doing these things that I now as an adult woman now take advantage of and the story the, the the arc that Joan has so she becomes super bitch and then she just realises that is not the way to go. You can't do that. She is a joyful person. And what we all must do, the greatest job that you can have on earth is just finding the things that you love and pointing at them right. and going, this is brilliant. Mm. You, this is what we must believe in. And the reason that the film, even though it's set in 1993, is so relevant now is that then I was the only teenage girl who could broadcast to people what I mm. thought about things. Now everyone can because everyone's on social media mm. and everyone tends to follow the same thing. You turn up on social media, you're all cheerful, you're like, here's my breakfast and here's my cat and here's some bands I love. And then some people have a go at you and then you slowly become more cynical. You put on... Cynicism is like an armour that you put on to protect mm. yourself and make yourself look more grown up. Like mm. kind of, yeah, I'm going to start being snarky and slagging things off. But this armour that you put on gradually starts to confine you. It becomes like a a cage. And define you. Yes. And you can't grow in armour. You can't dance in armour. And at some point you have to put your cynicism to one side and go, no, I am a joyful person. I Mm. do believe in positivity. I do believe in people and art. Here's the things I love. I'm Mm. not going to address the things I hate. I'm simply going to point at the things that I love. And that was was the story that I wanted to put, make the main focus of the film because... Learning to deal with social media, we've never had to do this before. We've never had a place where everybody can talk. It's like the start of a global consciousness. Everybody can talk to each other. And there are no rules. There are no kings and queens of the internet. There's no mummy and daddy of the internet. Mm. It's like the Wild West out there. It's literally like the Wild West in that it's generally programmed by white men and and the Wild West was populated by white men. It's interesting that the tech industry is centred in San Francisco. It's like the gold rush. That's where all the money is. It's, It's emulating the same things. And there is no law. And girls are pushed to the side and it is everyone for themselves yeah. and you know we, we sort of have these sheriffs that ride into town and it's brutal out there and I think at a later point we will have laws and customs and civility and civilizations of the internet and under ways of understanding to talk to each other but at the moment we don't mm. and I like to be a bit of a mum and turn up and go if you're a small young person going on the internet Here's the journey that will happen. You'll start off positive. You'll become darker because people will attack you. But you have to come out the other side and be positive because 
that's the essential journey and message of all humanity. Like right. you do have to end up being a nice person. There's mm. just no two ways about it. Mm. Don't be a dick is the alpha and omega of everything. You can reduce the entire <laughs> Bible down to don't be a dick. <laughs> I mean, I did read the entire Bible once and I wish that it would just those four words. TLDR. It would have been a much quicker experience for me. (laughs) Right, let's talk about your next change. Yes. So the biggest change in your adulthood that you've had to navigate or that you've discovered is? Yes, not hating my body. This is a big thing for women, I think. It's been an incredible 10 years for feminism. There are astonishing artists and writers and activists and actors out there but it still seems to be a trope, apart from Lizzo, that every right. woman at some point, no matter how female positive she is and self-loving she is, will do a bit in her routine or have a bit in her film about hating her body. There will just be a bit where you just have to go, well, then I look in the mirror and it's all just falling out and then what's all this? And you have to hate on yourself. And... With all these things, like there's, there's little rules that you can do to let you know if you're doing something wrong. Like one way to work out if some sexism is happening is go, do the boys have to worry about this? Like, mm. are boys doing this? Are men having to do all this kind of mad bullshit? And another one is, would I say this to my friend or child? Like kind of anything yeah. that you're saying about yourself, if in that routine that was someone describing her best friend or her daughter, we would be like... What are you doing? You can't say that, yeah. And also, she would never do that. Yeah. So you've got to, you know, it sounds all hokey and hippie, but you have to be your best friend. Mm. And even that, because that's the thing we say often meaninglessly, doesn't really cut through. So the thing that I found that is most useful for people who hate themselves and hate their bodies is saying to them, imagine you are your own dog. Right. Imagine you are a lovely dachshund called yeah. Colin. Yeah. Like kind of, would you starve Colin? Would you tell Colin he's ugly? Would you tell Colin he's fat? Would you cut Colin? You know, would you shout at Colin? Would you slag Colin off to other people? And everyone would be like, but no, that dachshund is adorable. And like, so if you wouldn't do it to a delightful dachshund called Colin, (laughs) why would you do it to yourself? Don't do it to yourself. But it takes a long time to learn that. Like, So when did you learn? What was the point for you? Well, so I was a very, because of the aforementioned cheese lollipop and Mm. and cheese on cheese sandwich. And And did you have a history of um, eating disorders? I, I mean, we didn't think so at the time, but, like, we were very poor, so, like, food would kind of come and go. Mm. Because of the way the benefit system works, because my dad was disabled, you get the main amount of money once a month. Mm. So you'd buy the food once a month, you'd get, you'd get this huge glut of stuff, we'd buy everything, and then the food would just sort of run out by the end of the month. Of course, And yeah. it's a completely common human response that if you're living through glut and famine, that, like, when the glut happens, you'll just stuff yourself because you're stocking up into for times of hardness so we would gorge we were bingers so we would just eat and eat and eat and eat on the first couple of days because we'd know by the end of the month there would be nothing left apart from flour and then you just make your patties and cook them under the grill and then wait for the next lot of money to turn up so i was i was a disordered binger um and i also had set up this weird thing in my head where i thought i couldn't write unless i ate it was like well how could words come out unless it's something's like weed going in musicians yes <laughs> something's got to go in yeah. for something to come out it's like a it's like Imagine a creative it. digestive system so <laughs> so i mean a, a thousand words would be like a pot of ice cream so okay. like if i you God. know on a, on a big old week i would mm. be chowing down a lot of stuff so i, I got up to about a size 28 and then one night I was lying down and I couldn't breathe because my neck was so fat. And I was like, OK, this is, you know, yeah. there's body positivity and then there's not being able to breathe. So I bought a bicycle and started swimming and lost a lot of weight. But then when you lose a lot of weight, I've got like very thin skin. I'm hypermobile. So then I just had like kind of just, I didn't, 
you don't sort of snap into like being skinny, like yeah. kind of your your body still is covered in stretch marks and kind of right. like rolls of, of sort of skin and stuff. So it was always just like a problem, really. It was always mm. just like, oh, well, it's just not like a body on the telly. Mm. So it can't be proper. Um, and it was only when I had my second daughter that like, and it was the first birth was catastrophic and an emergency c-section the second one was a beautiful water birth and my body had done a thing i'm so glad you had that second birth experience oh god me too yeah i worked very hard for that second experience i did all the i learned that like putting on three stone and lying around for nine months is not a good (laughs) idea that it's quite an active experience getting a baby out um so yeah so i was lucky i had a great experience and that was the first time that my body had just given me absolute evidence that it was an awesome thing mm. my brain and all my fuck-ups could not argue with that my body had just made a baby come out mm. and so i was lying there breastfeeding her and i just looked down at my legs and just patted and went oh guys <laughs> well done i mean they hadn't even done anything i mean i was i was working my way up like kind of like i was so i was just leaving my vagina alone for a bit it was like legs you're great legs you've always been with me you've yeah. never let me down like well done and just sort of started patting my body and going this is kind of amazing, really. Like, this is... And I haven't got another one. I'd always worked on the presumption that at some point I'd be involved in a huge car crash, be completely smashed up, and then be rebuilt, kind of like the bionic man, into, like, a girl from out of Beverly Hills 90210. That was kind of... I just presumed that would have to happen. Because there weren't any other big girls on TV. Like, so you're just like, well, at some point, my true form will have to emerge. At some point, they'll have to rebuild me to look like Shannon Doherty. Because Like stars in their eyes, you'll come out from the mist. Yes. And be like, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be Shannon Doherty. Yeah, and finally my life will start. Because this is another really common thing for women. We, we, you know, we tend to think that our life hasn't started yet. It's like, when I lose that weight, when I get the haircut, when I've got the wardrobe, like kind of when, I don't know, I've got my meditation routine in the morning. Right. but we still don't think this is it mm. because all films have a makeover and that's when things get great women's yeah. films they have a makeover and that's when their life becomes amazing when yeah. they walk in the room and everyone goes oh you were beautiful all along so we're all waiting for that moment <laughs> that's why weddings are so huge for women because they that's are the, the day yeah. yeah the wedding is the makeover yeah. if you could just have the wakeover without having to get married this would solve so many of women's <laughs> fuck-ups <laughs> You don't have to find a bloke and spend 25 grand and invite everyone there. You just need to get a really good makeup job and a dress. And you could do the whole thing for a grand. And then you go, this is the day my life starts. It's my makeover. But we're so programmed to the rhythms of films that we absolutely expect that to happen. So my makeover didn't happen, but it was birth, which is the other thing that allows you to sort of 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 recalibrate your life and stuff. So then I just started liking my body and living in it and going okay this is it I am with this body now and so then that changed my entire attitude to exercise because again so much of the language around doing things with your body is you know you get these things like skinny bitch club and stuff and it's like you know you motivate yourself by going come on you lazy bitch get out there and do this you've got to sweat to earn it kind of you know Mm. um and if that's being hard that's at some point if you like yourself if even if you only have a tiny bit of self-worth in yourself at some point in a year-long regime of going, get out of bed, you bitch, and go out there and jog and then just eat this juice and, like, starve yourself because it's all worth it, whatever tiny bit of self-love you have in your body will go, but I like me and I keep being horrible to me and I don't want to do this anymore. And then that's when you stop your exercise regime and you go and eat some toast instead of some juice because you rebel against the horrible thing you're making yourself do. Whereas once you like your body and 
particularly if you start thinking of it as a small dog, you're like, well, the dog needs to go for a run today. It, it will get tetchy if it doesn't go for a run. Like yeah. the dog really, or like the dog feels a bit peaky. So the dog is going to need some broccoli. Like mm. it really wants some vegetables right now. It's getting a bit bunged up and constipated. So let's yeah. treat the dog to some veg. And once you're like, and once you realise that these, all these things that are supposed to be good for you and like kind of, or you punish yourself with them are treats and right. joys. Right. And this is what animals want to do. Suddenly yeah. you're like, yeah, I'm going to do yoga because yoga isn't like becoming holy yeah. it's it's just mucking about yeah it's stretching like as grown-ups we're constantly told to like sit still sit straight mm. you know when you get tense you hold your breath when you're talking to someone you hate on the phone you clench your bum cheeks yeah and then you never unclench them again yeah and yoga is finally lying on the floor and going i'm gonna unclench my bum cheeks from that agonizing conversation i had on the phone four years ago with jan from accounts <laughs> i'm just gonna muck about Let's talk about sex and porn. Yes, absolutely. Um, tell me about what you, like your relationship with porn now, because it it feels like a very, very, very destructive thing, but also a very, very important thing. Yes. So there's a conflict there, right? It's, well, yeah, it's, I mean, I guess having teenage daughters kind of like makes you see all these things in you. Because like when, you know, when I first started writing about feminism and myself, I was writing from the point of view of someone who was only newly finished being a teenage girl. Yeah. So then once you're raising teenage girls, you see the world in a slightly different way because you're like, okay, well, what advice am I going to give them? So pornography, over 90% of kids in this country learn about sex through pornography. Yeah. And the thing I have to tell my kids is you've got to remember that isn't sex. It's two people at work. It's a very big difference. Mm. It's two people at work. They are at their job. They're not having sex. They are at work. And the tropes of pornography are very often that, well, I mean, all that sex is is two people trying to have a good time. That's not what's happening in pornography. It's all about male pleasure to the point where you don't see female pleasure. Mm. What's often replaced is female pain. It's women being put through extreme things. Like, we know, we have an animal sense that this should be emotionally extreme at some point. But because we don't see female pleasure, because women tend not to come, there isn't a female orgasm. It's, I mean, it's almost virtually impossible. There's a couple of amazing initiatives. There's a woman called Cindy Gallup who has this organisation called Make Love Not Porn. And they try to make ethical pornography in that they just ask couples or, or throuples or whatever relationships you're in to just send them tapes of them having sex. Yeah. And then you pay for it. But you are finally seeing people who like each other trying to have a good time yeah and it seems crazy that that's such a niche in a gigantic industry of pornography because mm. that is what sex is mm. like kind of that is what you are trying to do so that's that's sort of a, a source that i point people towards but like but the fact that like we're managing to screw sex up right. for people that we don't know what it is like animals have sex all the time cats are having sex on roofs but we are not showing our teenage kids how to have sex there's an awful story that um lucianne holmes the feminist campaigner tells who did the no more page three campaign she went into a school to do a sex education talk and afterwards a mother came over to her and went my 16 year old son came back yesterday in tears he tried to have sex with his 16 year old girlfriend for the first time they started doing it and then he started to strangle her and she started to cry and went, please don't do this. And he started to cry and went, but I thought that was what we did. I thought that was what women liked. Oh, God. Because there is so much strangling in pornography. Oh, God. It's crazy to me that you would think strangling was part of, of sex, but female orgasm wasn't. 
And that's why generally, although the idea of pornography isn't shameful or wrong and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I wouldn't want to close down the sex industry at all. We need more choice. Yeah. The answer we to everything women led point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The answer is never ban something, it's always increase the lexicon. Yeah, like, yeah give exactly. Me, give me yeah. more choice. Yeah. And at the well, moment not, you yeah. just don't see anything joyful out there. When you were pregnant, did you feel like really randy all the time? I had did you have this thing like when you come, your whole belly goes rock hard. <laughs> like <laughs> when, when you're pregnant. Yeah. Like I would have it like everything would like spasm so much that it would just go completely rock hard. I don't remember that. There needs to be like there probably is a word in German because they have words for everything of like the amount of time it takes you to find some nice porn like you, you're in the mood you kind of need to you need to find it in about three or four minutes you're like in three or yeah. four minutes i want to i want to be wanking so let's google 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 oh that's horrible oh that's distressing oh that's gonna hold me forever oh i need to call the police their mums need to know that's happening oh i've lost the mood like you've got you've got a slot haven't you <laughs> once you're six minutes into like this horrible spiral of darkness you're like um oh, i might just go and google some recipes instead i might bake instead i've really <laughs> I've lost my wank. <laughs> lost my wank. <laughs> Just gonna waddle downstairs yeah, when you're pregnant. Yeah. Belly. Oh well, I'll be horny again in ten minutes, so I'll give it another go then. It was these times that I really wish that when I wasn't pregnant, I had thought ahead to my pregnant horny self and just made a folder of of nice porn right. that I could have accessed really quickly. Right. Someone should do that if you're listening. Someone do that. God, the, well, everyone's got time on their hands now. If someone literally, <laughs> pregnant ladies. let's make a pact here. If someone can make a collection of nice pawns and put them all together in like a folder, we can tweet the hell out of that. So what are the what are the parameters of that? What do you want? A woman coming. You want number a, one. The main thing is a woman coming. Yes. Yeah. Two. I. I'm not. I mean, everyone's got their own. I mean, I've just so the new, the next book that I've written is the sequel to How to Be a Woman Called More Than a Woman about middle age and oh kind of God. like the way that things have changed. So like kind of each to their own. I don't want to kink shame anybody, yeah. but like kind of I don't I don't really want to see people being endlessly spanked on the bum. Like yeah. kind of like I'm not a grand national horse being spanked <laughs> over the finishing line. That, that's not doing it. Like my, my clitoris is here. My breasts are here. My mouth is here. My the side of my thigh there's bone there that really hurts why you do this to me i don't like this for me the days of anal sex are over and yeah. I, I really associate that with the 90s now i associate that with chris evans and the all saints and alcoholic lemonade i'm like those days are gone i can't because you have to schedule it like kind of it's because it is you know it's 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 an undeniably poo based activity like even if poo doesn't happen the fear of poo hangs hangs oh, low oh yeah. hangs low like, yeah. literally yeah you're like is that you got is something coming in or going out like literally i just wish there was cctv around the back so i could see what's going on Maybe little wind mirrors what's going on there oh. So I feel like I've very much got a sign on my bum that says, thanks to all my little customers over the years, but we are now closed for business. Like, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for the memories. But like, because I think you have to be romantic to do anal sex because it's quite, it's quite an intense thing to do. You have to really believe in anal sex to do all of the preparation, to see it through without really getting worried about any kind of possible Don't you need poo. to have a, a bidet for like you like you need to have a bum washer yeah, for that kind of thing exactly not everyone has those in their houses well, how do you do that well when you read about the preparations for anal sex you either have to have not eaten for six hours beforehand well that's going to be problematic happen, no well, especially if you're planning to have like an evening of exciting bum fun and yeah. like kind of like <laughs> and then at three o'clock you absolutely eat a hot cross bunny you're like oh balls i can't do it today <laughs> kind of <laughs> shit just texting, just sorry, texting, texting sorry, bad only. Guys, sorry, I just had a hot cross yeah. bun, so. Knackers. <laughs> picture of the buns sent as a picture. Sorry, that this is what's ruined so, your fun tonight. 
<laughs> Bums off. <laughs> round the front. Oh. All deliveries round the front, please. But you know what? If a man is tired of Fanny, he's tired of life. You know, it's such a reliable old friend. <laughs> like, kind of, it's, you know, it just does the job for years and years. <laughs> <laughs> and again, if that's your thing and you can do the admin, I admire you. It's like, you know, if you are still out there and you're willing to do that and you're willing to do the admin and the scheduling, absolutely bum away. Go for it. Yeah. Go for it. But yeah. I'm just very realistic about my schedule now. I will need a snack about three o'clock. So yeah. it just can't happen anymore. So, yeah. So what we would like is women to um, please, could they put um, put together a very nice porn list for especially pregnant women who are who who have a need yeah just nice stuff like kind of i mean i would love to see like a man reverently face touching and stroking and then neck stroking and then at this point he probably i mean if i'm commissioning it he turned into alan rickman where he's going give me something to do or else i'll go mad in, <laughs> is it in sense and sensibility which is incredibly horny yeah, yeah. then it turns to that bit in blade runner where harrison ford's just putting his finger in his mouth for like no reason and it's just really pleasant I've got a little. I've got. I went on Twitter about a year ago and went, "Women, Catelyn, you need to make a porn film." Yes. Oh my God! How have we not thought of this? You've okay. You're in Hollywood now. This oh is God. your chance. I really should make a fucking porn film. Make the ultimate porn film. Oh. Make the porn that women want on a mainstream level. I this would, is so cool. I would really like to do that because what I do is I do it like, like a kind of sort of. I was going to say jive bunny, but that makes it sound bad. But <laughs> where you just go online and ask like, people what all their women, what all their favourite bits, sexy things were. Because yeah. we have we have to make do on crumbs. It's what like, Florence and the Machines just done on Twitter. She's got everyone to submit little lines of poetry and she's done a collective poem on Twitter. Really? Yeah, how cute is that? That's so clever. Yeah, so you could do that with porn. I love a bit of community art, but that's what mm. it'd be. It'd be like a jive bunny of porn. Everybody would send in their favourite bits that they've... Because women... Our sexual imaginations needs like a scenario and a character, I think, yeah, often. Oh, that's so it. You so need, like, even when you're, all my friends, Anna, when you're going into sex, you can't just, I'm still thinking about, like, a conversation I had earlier that day. It takes me so long in my head to get in the zone. This is the main and thing. And I can't get it, I'm like, I can't just go straight there. I need to be, if we have a quickie, I need to have some preemption so yes. I need to know that there's a quickie going to happen so I can be ready Prep for the quickie yourself. but this is the thing because women have a constant to-do list in their heads we are constantly Always. multitasking and you we cannot engage into sexy mode until that's been turned off Yeah. so you either need a long slow teasy discussion through the day where you're just getting texts and like it's going to be really right. great for you at 6 o'clock so you're getting ready for it and you can go okay at 6 o'clock I can stop thinking or you need something really huge to happen yeah. like just someone grabbing you and going bang we're doing yeah. it now so yeah. you stop thinking but the stopping thinking is the key thing yeah. We cannot have sex until we stop thinking because yeah. very often I'll be lying there thinking, have I ordered inflatable mattresses for Christmas because you yeah. can never start preparing too quickly. And like, and then, and I can't explain that to my husband because then it'll ruin things for him and I need to be swept along on his desire yeah, in order to, really, to stop you thinking. Have to, I have to really try. Yeah. I have to really try and just blank out my mind. Tell me, I, one of the things I really wanted to ask you about today is mental load. Right, oh my God, yes. I'm obsessed mm. with this, right? And I'm, I, and I, and I wanted to ask you about it as a kind of expert in, in someone who thinks about this shit a lot, right? That's part of my mental load, yes. Exactly. Okay, so when I'm talking about mental load, let me just explain. Mental load is where in every heterosexual relationship mm -hmm. I know it's always the women who have to organise the dentist appointments it's the women who have to organise the homework and, and the women as you say always have a list in their head they're really they're forward planners Yes. and I don't know whether they're forward planners because they have to be or because they're forward planners because that's why we're wired right? yeah 
So, I how have, does it work for you? Well, again, in the forthcoming book, uh, More Than a Woman, uh, I, I've, I've, I've managed to break this down because my teenage, one of my teenage brothers came to live with me. And at that point, I started to understand the what generally happens in heterosexual relationships because he was brought up in the same family as me. We have the same DNA, but he saw the way, he saw our household and our family in a completely different way to how I did. Mm. Previously, I'd gone, well, my husband, he was brought up a different way, so that's why he's not thinking ahead to birthdays or planning what bowls we're going to buy in six months' time or when we're going to redecorate the front room in three years' time and like when to reupholster the chair. But then when my brother moved in and he's exactly the same DNA, exactly the same family, exactly the same circumstances, but he did not see things like I did either. I was like, okay, this is a gender thing. So then I start again, well, what was the difference between our child and our upbringings and I'm thinking about beside our beds beside his bed so he's into computer games and maths so beside his bed were loads of gaming magazines and gaming books and maths books and beside my bed were loads of women's magazines and household guide guides because if you go into a news agent's it says men's interests and women's lifestyles Those are the two categories of magazines. So men have interests, solo interests, that Mm. they concentrate on and they become experts in, in computer gaming, in maths. Women have lifestyles. We are expected to do everything. So there isn't a solo subject female magazine. In every woman's magazine, it's everything. It's like how to get stains, red wine stains out of a decanter, how how to condition your hair using an egg, how to get an abortion, how to campaign against FGM, how to raise a child, what to do when your friend's having a nervous breakdown. We are being taught to cope with the whole world from a very early age in all of the literature that we absorb and all the programming that we watch men just have a fishing magazine or a a computer games magazine or a car magazine they have solo interests and that's from a very early age we raise women to think about everything and we raise men to specialize in their interest and that's and you see that then pans forward 30 years men become specialists in things they can dedicate themselves to things in a very monomaniacal way um, which makes them incredibly successful, generally more successful at things, whereas right. women are covering everything. We are the holders together of society. You cannot do without us. But this is the way that we see worlds differently. So then you fast forward 30 years, and I'm in a house where my husband comes back and he's bought a new bowl that he found in a charity shop for a pound. And I'm like on edge as it, soon as it comes to the door. I'm like, what's that? He went, I just found this bowl in a shop for a pound. I really like it. It's exactly the right size for me to have my evening cereal. And I'm like but where will it go in the drawer? And he's like, what? And I was like, well, in our in our crockery drawer, I've got the small plates, the big plates, the big bowls, the small bowls, and the ramekins. Where is this mid-sized bowl going to go? And he just doesn't see what I'm saying. He's like, but I like this bowl. I'm like, but I have planned this crockery drawer. I have made sure that we have all the crockery we will need in any situation. And they are in their piles. And that is the organisation that I've done. Why have you brought this random cuckoo in the nest bowl that has no place into my house? And he will go, I will keep it in my room. And I'll go, yes, you will keep it in your room. It will not. And similarly, a man will come back, and this isn't right, neither side is right or wrong, but a man will come back and he'll go, I just found this skip in a chair. No, this chair in a skip. Yeah. It's brilliant. I love it. And mm. I'm like, but we cannot have this chair in the front room because in six months' time, I'm going to redecorate the front room and that's when I'm going to buy the new sofa and there will not be room for this chair. And he doesn't know that I'm planning so to the redecorate woman, the, the room. woman is always three steps ahead. Yes. I've, equally, like, I, I find... Uh, in relationships this is a case because mm-hmm. the women are always you know when, when it comes to women ending a relationship the, the men are it, it always feels like the men are very blindsided because they haven't thought ahead whereas the women are always thinking ahead how, this relationship is like this like, how is this going to manifest what will it mean this doesn't mean that he's not able to he doesn't want to do so it's over 
You yeah. know, it's always thinking in that way, whereas men are just like, oh. Well, for two reasons. One, because we watch women's films that other narratives are about what are you going to do? When are you going to get married yeah. and have children and have this house? We have to plan it. The, first right. of all, those are the stories that we're raised on. So in our head, we are aware of where we are in our story arc. Yeah. We're either looking for a mate or working out once we're with them, if they're the mate we're going to settle down with, and when, or are we at the bit where we're going to have a baby? Like kind yeah. of, men aren't watching those films. They still think they're going to have to at some point get a gun and kill the Terminator. So they, yeah. they're not aware of where you're in your relationship arc because they don't watch relationship arc stories. And secondly, the consequences for life events are more long-lasting for women than men. Mm-hmm. Like kind of, even if you're with the best person in the world and you decide to have a baby, like kind of, he can leave. You can't, you will have that baby. You will be the one that will generally end up with custody of it. So of course you've got to think ahead. Mm. And thirdly, time and time again, if you look at all the studies of what happens with women, even if you manage to say, get a great job, um, if you fuck up at that job, you are, I can't remember what the exact statistic is, but something like 75% more likely to be fired for making one mistake than, and this is the the same for people of colour and people from the LGBT community Mm. as well. If you're seen as a minority or an outlier, if you make one mistake, you are far more likely to be fired than you are if you're a straight white man Mm. so we are always having to game ahead because Mm. we know that you don't often get second chances Mm. like this this is your chance so of course we're thinking ahead because when you get your shot you need to go for it when you get your chance you need to make sure that you're not going to screw it up so these things aren't happening randomly because we've got you know we're subconsciously we are machines that looks at what society is and knows what our stats are and of course we're gaming ahead because we have to so with the typical mental load scenario right which is a working mom in a family she still seems to run the household and again you know this is just my experience yes like this is not you know i'm not quoting this as fact and she still has to remember everything and uh as good intentioned and lovely as the as the men are um, and happy to do what they're told, which is always the case. Yes. Why is it that the women still have to fucking have have all the memories and all the thoughts and all the plans for the for the family? It's you still have to be the captain. So how I would can imagine, that change? I would what? imagine you've had the scenario where you've suddenly had a wig out and gone. Why am I the only person that's noticed the door handle's fallen off and that we need to have got a birthday present and that we need to have worked out next week's childcare? And your partner, who is, I'm sure is as lovely as mine, will go, but why didn't you just tell me? Just tell yeah. me what to do and I I'll do this, it. I had this, that was it. He and said, then you go. He said, I had yeah. a massive go and he said, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that then, was the quote. And then you say, I shouldn't have to tell yes. you. I'm not the captain. I'm yes. not the head of fucking HR. Why can't you think of stuff too? Yes. Like you need to see it. So why can't they see it? Well, because we... Sorry. I just Be- whacked my well, because we my plan own. ahead, I would imagine from the very beginning of your relationship, and we take pride in this, we would have gone, well, I'll be in charge of this. At the beginning, it's kind of like, show, let me show you how capable so I am. What I'm he will this. say is, I fucking can't do it right. Yes. He'll say, oh, well, why don't you let me do the fucking holiday then? And then we'll end up in an Airbnb that's not right and doesn't have stuff for the kids. And, and I'll be like, given out. And he'll be yeah. like, well, fucking there you go. So it's, it's kind of it, equally, I am, you know, responsible for always feeling like I'm the only person who can do it right. Yeah. And, and I think that's a big thing, I think, with parenting too, maybe like the of amount course. of female friends I've seen where it's like, listen, you, you haven't done that. I, I need to do it this way. And, and yeah. they kind of own that yes. because they're so paranoid of, 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 it, of it being wrong whereas there's just his way and her way yes and there is real no right or wrong really well, it's well, just a, a different way isn't there well what we find it, it's what we find agonizing is a situation where a mistake might happen and there are two kinds of mistakes there's a mistake where it does really go wrong you book into the wrong hotel and there's no food that your kids will like or it's yeah. not child friendly and they fall down some stairs and like kind of you know you would have researched that maybe your partner hasn't because they're not yeah. thinking ahead but 
you have to, I think, because I, I had this, I've, I had this massive freak out, and we found the solution was we got a whiteboard, we put it in the kitchen, and I'm like, I'm going to put everything that's on my head in this whiteboard, right. and and our kids are teenage now, and people have to take stuff off this whiteboard. Everyone's got to take three things off this whiteboard really? a week because it can't be in my head anymore, and actually put the contents of your head on a whiteboard and go. This oh is God, everyone's Catelyn, job. I now. love that. It works because it's cathartic for you because it's out of your head. The, the list is gone. Yes, like even by the act of writing it, it's 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 an expression out of your head and then it's on them yeah and then you don't have to tell them because it's there and they get to do it in their own time so you don't get hard. to be the nag yes because that's the worst bit I hate myself and it's what I keep saying to my husband it's like I don't want to be the fucking person that has to remind you of this shit yeah. all the time no totally it's like you don't want to be Captain Buzzkill coming in the, you know because then you're that character in you know you, then you're that female character in films that comes in the front room where all the men are having fun and puts her hands on her hips and goes guys yeah. there's a load of trash that needs taking out and by yeah. the way the end of the world's coming so you better get ready for it you never want to be that person but mm. So you just put it on the whiteboard and then and then you have to remind yourself the hardest bit. Once it's on the whiteboard, you can't... You can't, you can't remind. Yeah, you, it's just like, but these are all the things that have to be done by the end of the week. And tell me something, has there been a noticeable difference since you they've started being able to see your list? Like, has any of, has anyone... I had an Thought amazing. Of writing their own thing on the list. I had an amazing breakthrough moment at Christmas. I was loading the dishwasher, and my oldest daughter came in and went, "Mum, you're loading the dishwasher wrong." And I'm, I have very strict beliefs about the dishwasher I mean, loading. These are like, no nonstick. Stop putting my sharp knives in there. The wine glasses will have to go here, and they won't get cleaned. Yeah. And she went, "No, if you put because we've got one of those ones that's got a top drawer that the you cutlery. put all the cutlery in." I know it. And she was like, "If you put all the spoons together, and then the knives together, and then the forks together, you can just grab them all, each one in each handful, and put them into the genius." And I went, and I, I had tears in my eyes because as a society now, we don't ha- really have moments where people officially become adults. Like, you know, yeah. your 18th birthday, you pass your driving test, but there's not these big tribal celebrations of like, yeah. now you're an adult. For me, in modern society, that felt like it to me. My daughter now has a better, superior way of loading the dishwasher. You are now finally an adult. And I burst into tears in front of her and she was like, why are you crying, Mum? And I was like, because my little girl became a lady. <laughs> It's not about wedding days. No, it's not about any no, of that. not about the men are. It's literally, she'd <laughs> sussed the knives, the forks and the spoons. That cutlery drawer is now boss. And they do come up with better things because if you're coming up with the solutions to 300 things, yeah. you know, we will do a great job. Like, I, I would imagine your mm. shit is on point and my shit is on point. Mm. But when other people become involved, they come up with new things. Like the youngest one, since I was told everybody they had to cut three meals a week between them has started experimenting with all these incredible recipes and there's nothing like sitting down, having someone shout at the stairs, Mum, tea's ready. Oh, it's my... Listen, I'm still trying to get my six-year-old to make me breakfast. I'm like, listen, it's really easy. Just pour that in there and I got him a little stool so he can reach the cupboard. I'm really looking forward to that moment. I can remember my parents, like when we all got to about the age of five, just going, that's the grill pan. That's how you make toast. You're on your own now. That was basically kind of like, we we stopped parenting now. The point where you know how to make your own toast, you're kind of... You're set. You're done. That's lunch and dinner. Yeah. It's all three meals. That's the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Every meal needed. So listen, we need to talk about this new book. I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about it. I mean, I'm probably not, but I've just finished it. So I'm What's all like, I want to talk about it. It's called More Than A Woman. More Than It Was Such A Great Name. Because when I wrote How To Be A Woman, More then I noticed... It's that Aaliyah song. And this divides the generations because people either go Bee Gees. Yeah. More Than oh, A Woman. Oh, I say Aaliyah. I went Aaliyah. Mm-hmm. So like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so when I wrote How To Be A Woman, I noticed, I mean, no shade on all these people who did it, but everybody started writing books called How To Be and then yeah. A Thing. And I was That's like, well... shade. Cast fucking... Own that shit. Take that You're in shade. the dark. You stole the idea. Right. And they all started writing memoirs that were interspersed with polemic. And like, yeah. it's a great format and I'm happy. But I was like, well, I can't now do that because everybody's stolen my idea. So how am I going to do this? So I was like, it'll be more 
than a woman. Mm. Um, and uh, it takes the uh, format of a day because this is this is for me the middle aged wow. woman's dilemma in a nutshell. You get to the end of the day, you start the day going, my to do list is so gigantic. How am I going to do this? Right. And you get to the end of the day and you'll have done some of it, but you'll go, but where did the rest of the time go? How has this entire day happened? And I've only achieved half of what I was supposed to do. So each chapter is an hour in the day. And what happens to you each hour? Wow. And how your day just gets derailed by things and the things that you're having to do. Like, you know, you're the caring for ageing parents, like kind of teenagers having a nervous breakdown. The hour where you try and continue to have sex with the same person for 25 years. The the point where your marriage is in crisis. How you manage to work when you've got kids. The point where you start realising you're ageing and you have a depressed moment where you realise you literally are growing a wattle and how you feel about that um so yeah so each chapter is an hour like a kind of medieval book of hours this is the <laughs> wow. hour where we consider each of these things so i'm really really happy with it oh my like, god yeah, just... and what have, what did you what have you learned about yourself in the process of writing it and and your journey through your 40s the main thing i've learned about parenting teenagers this is this was really huge for me is that everything that you learn being a parent of younger children just gets slammed into reverse when mm. you're when you have young children you are, as we have discussed, in charge of everything and you're planning ahead. And this mm. is where planning ahead really starts with women because, like, if you're out with a kid, you know in half an hour they're going to get hungry and they're going to start screaming. So mm. you need to, wherever you are, you need to make sure you're on your way back or have food with you. And, and this like, is of, where women panic when their husbands look after the kids because they don't think in that way. No. And, like, you know, if I go down that street, there's a dog in that house that barks at them and the kid gets scared and then it really freaks out. So yeah. I need to do that. You know, every you've planned, mm. you literally, you lose all sense of actual temporal time because you're living in the future yeah. constantly, yeah. like, at the whole whole day and and you're in charge of everything so like and you solve everything they come to you crying and the only way they're going to stop crying is you're going to solve that problem when they go into their teenage years that all suddenly slams in reverse they come to you with the problems they always have and they're crying and you go well i'd do this and they just go no why do you keep telling me what to do and you're like because that's what i've always done and i'm really wise and you're small and they're like oh you're just always trying to be in control of my life like why won't you just listen to me and it takes you a long time to hear what they're saying which is Basically, they're going, I need to grow up now. I need to learn to be the problem solver. And if you're still the problem solver, what can I do? I'm trapped. So I'm going to get angry with you. This is 90% of teenage problems with their parents and rebellion and anger with their parents. They have to make their parents stand to one side and they have to become the clever, amazing people. And as a consequence, and for our personality types, and when they hit their teenage years, I'm going to ring you up and remind you about this because it's so key. For our personality types, the hardest thing in the world is to stop being clever, alpha-driven, organised women who know everything and you have to turn into a sitcom mum or like a lovely dairy cow called Daisy and you just need to become quite stupid but benign and just sort of moo at them encouragingly. So when they come in with a problem and they go, oh, you go, oh, mate, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Oh, God, what a dilemma. Yeah, Yeah, literally, you have to say what you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You seem so upset and then you do this thing where you go, like, for instance, they're going, I know I've got to do my homework, but my friend's just rung up and she's really upset and I should go and see her. And everything's shit and I hate it and I'm just really freaking out. Oh, And you have to go, oh, my God, that's really harsh. I can see you're really upset. And it's really difficult for you because I can see on the one hand, you know you need to get this homework done. But on the other hand, your friend's upset and you want to go and see her. And as soon as you put the problem like that to them, they go... Well, I suppose I could go and see her for an hour and then come back and do my homework. Or I could go over there. They start coming up with suggestions. Or yeah. I could go there and we could do our homework together. And then you go, you're so clever. Oh, oh God, that makes me so emo just hearing that. Took two years to learn that one, wow. though. And there was a lot of shouting on the way. Yeah, so That's... it's a big, big, big tip. Yeah, become, you have to become stupid. Like all yeah. of this big brain that you've got here now mm. will become your 
biggest enemy in a couple of years' time. Mm. You have to just moo at them. Wow. I found I started to dress like Linda Bellingham in the Oxo advert. <laughs> I became very kind of, very Marlarkin, just kind of started wearing lovely dresses and just pretending to be a bit thick. Ooh, <laughs> that seems like a big problem, but I'm sure you're cleverer than me and you'll come up with a solution. <laughs> Just moving forwards, right, you do so much amazing work in terms of feminism and helping people, helping people realise they're feminists. It's yes. the big one with you, I it's think. The it's the big secret we have all the revolution, yes. right. But what is the next thing that people need to do, like, to affect change? Every listener of this podcast, what can they do to help, do you think? The key thing is, and I understand why, but you don't do angry so if you want to affect change, it's probably because you've become angry about something, an injustice that you've seen, either in your own life or in someone else's life, and you are angry about this. Now, anger is fear brought to the boils. You're scared that you're being disadvantaged. You're scared right. that you're being hurt. You're scared other people are being disadvantaged and hurt. But if you act in anger and communicate in anger, particularly on social media, you do no good at all. Because people don't listen to what you are saying the sensible proposals that you're saying, the evidence that you're telling them, the personal experiences that you're relating to them, they just hear the emotion anger and they respond in anger and you look at the internet and 90% of what should be brilliant progressive causes where people unite together are people shouting angry scared Rage. people shouting at each other yeah. so don't so you'll have the anger but don't do anger just use the anger as an energy to communicate calmly if you can communicate with humor humor is a magical thing mm. because humor gives the person that you are communicating to a chance to back down and agree with you if you, are, if you make a joke, a joke is inclusive. And if someone joins in on the joke, they are agreeing with you. They yeah. are coming along with you. And so and as an adjunct to that, the thing that would most affect change at the moment is not seeking to destroy people that you disagree with. There are always going to be people who you Praise are... Praise <laughs> the Lord. That is so true. Because man. there are always going to be people that you are generally aligned to. And it tends to be the vanity of small distances. The biggest arguments that tend to go on on the internet are people who are generally allied in some kind of cause. Right. But there's one issue that they disagree with each other about. Mm. And it turns into a massive Twitter storm and people get cancelled and people get deplatformed and everybody rages off. And meanwhile, the man's sitting there having a wank going, hey, 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 ladies, you keep arguing about these little things and I'll mm. continue being in control. You must not, if you disagree with what someone has done, don't seek to destroy them. Don't mm. seek to argue with them because then all you do is produce rubble. We can't progress if every time someone puts something forward, they are flamed and destroyed. Right. If you disagree with what someone does or says or has created, let that be and create a new thing. Mm. The thing that you didn't like about the thing that they had done you go and do the thing that you would like. Just increase the lexicon. Yeah. The argument is always yeah. more choice. Make it bigger. Make the movement bigger. Make it so that at whatever entry point someone has into the cause that you are talking about, they'll find someone that they agree mm. with rather than just one orthodoxy, one completely right person in the centre of it going, I was proven right, but they've destroyed everyone else around them. Like, I think as well what you said about actually doing things is really key as well, yes. isn't it? It's like the idea of rather than just shouting and raging on the internet, actually do something. Yeah, make something. Make something happen. Don't make your blog about some asset who's fucked up. 
up. Yeah. Write your blog about someone who's done something brilliant yeah. instead. Yeah, yeah. There's that whole thing about when things get bad, and particularly with how things are at the moment, look for the helpers. That's what's going to make you feel better. Right. So do something, start a collection, start a community group, kind of like just mm. talk to people. Mm. You know, you cannot be what you cannot see. Like mm. kind of you need to see people doing things. And I think we exhaust ourselves just talking, arguing with each other about what's wrong mm. rather than actually getting along with doing what's right. So it's just simply be the change you would wish to see. Yeah. And do never waste your time trying to tear someone down because at some point then someone will tear you down. Yeah. And then where have we got to? We, yeah. we will have literally not moved on. So just whenever you disagree with someone, just quietly in your head go, I completely disagree with you and now I'm going to do it better over here. What's your next big mission, Catelyn Moran? What, just written another book. Just written another book, uh, More Than a Woman, about middle-aged feminism. Because I noticed that like all the brilliant feminism that you have in the last 10 years is about young, messy girls kind of going out there and they're drinking the wine and right. having the sex. But then what happens next? And what happens next in middle age is you can't, your problems stop being yourself and your your stupid problems and you trying to work out who you are. Your problems become other people because you become society at that point. You are the person looking after aging parents. You are the person looking after children. Your friends start divorcing. People have nervous breakdowns. You become like the fourth emergency service. Mm. And I've not seen anything written about that, trying to make middle age. Middle age is just as messy and funny and sexy and adventurous and weird and difficult and amazing as being young. Mm. But we don't write anything about being middle aged women. So uh, so that book's that. Amazing. And and then the next book, which I've just started yesterday, so I finished that book last Jesus, week. Jesus, you're a machine! Oh, every I always write in a book. So then the next book is about basically uh, the John Hughes film Weird Science. Okay. I am rewriting that as a feminist tome. Wow. Women start making men. Wow. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. <laughs> women make men robots as husbands. But what men would women create? And would that work out well? Interesting. Mm. I don't know yet because I haven't worked out the plot, but that's okay. the idea. Um, Catelyn Moran, you are a wonder. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. I really want to stay here now. I just Your little your little rave hut is the happiest place in London. It's nice, isn't it? Can I live here? Come anytime. Well, well I mean, we're pre-lockdown. Yes. Post-lockdown, come anytime. We Maybe love you. If, so if we find out the lockdown's happened when we go back in and turn the radio on, does that mean I have to stay here with you? <laughs> You're locked in. Yes. I'll just bring you food. Yes. Today. <laughs> to the rave hut. <laughs> uh, right, before you go, I've got quick fire questions. Ready for this. Right. Okay. Don't just, just, yeah, okay. Because some of these are not super quick fire, so just first thing on your mind. One, your greatest achievement. Oh, oh. I think it probably would be the cheese lollipop, a lump of cheese on a fork. It has gotten me through many a bad time. Best invention ever. Two, maddest thing that's ever happened to you at a book signing. Oh, um, I had a whole family that turned up, grandmother, mother, daughter, um, uh, who were all drunk as each other, which was incredible to see the generations united through alcohol. This was in Dublin. And uh, they got me to sign their breasts and then they introduced their cousin and he got me to sign his penis. And then he brought over his baby and I signed a baby. (laughs) That's incredible. Thank you, Ireland. Thank you to my home country. Uh, Right, your celebrity pass meaning the celeb that Peter, your husband, will allow you to cheat on him with. Will allow me to cheat on him? Oh, God, who have I got? I think it's probably still Mark... It's Mark Ruffalo when he's half Banner, half Hulk, because I like him big and green, but not full... I still like him when he's a clever scientist, Banner, but, like, he's got a little bit greenness. Yeah, he's slightly... But he's still still got trousers on. (laughs) Bath or shower? Oh, bath. Cat or dog? Dog? Dogs are the best. Best thing about your dog? Um, my sister pointed this out. I will spend most of my time looking at, pointing at the dog going, look at that stupid, furry, smelly, vagina-looking beast. It has not got a clue in its head. It is an idiot. And she said, I really often can't tell if you're talking about the dog or yourself. 
love it. Benedict Cumberbatch or Matt Healy? <gasps> That's really right? tricky. Right? I know. You've written I, about both. I know, I know well. them both a bit and they are both so lovely. The loveliest thing about Matty Healy, we were talking about how sexist the 90s was. And uh, and the, the thing that was worse for me about being a teenage girl and a writer in the 90s was that teenage girl fans were absolutely shat upon. Um, so many of the Britpop bands that got right. big. The reason they got big is because they suddenly got teenage girl fans and so many of them hated it. They just wanted, they would rather have had 20 cool indie boys at the back than a thousand girls screaming mm. at the front. And they just looked down on them and shunned them. And it seemed extraordinary to me that you would get to a point that you would reject love, that you saw a certain group of people, teenage girls, as so much lesser that you would be mm. embarrassed of them loving you mm. unconditionally. And the difference between the 90s and now is that bands love their teenage girlfriends. Mm. Like when Matty Healy came over to our house, I did a feature and uh, he wanted to go up to my teenage girl's room and see what they looked like. And then he sat on the bed and he played his guitar and they just couldn't believe it. And then he went, girls, I've got to ask you a really important question. Am I cool? Like, are the 1975 cool to teenage girls? And they went, yeah. And he went, oh, thank God. That's brilliant. That's all I wanted to know. <laughs> no one would ever have asked that question in the 90s. No, they just yeah. didn't care. I love it. So I think, I don't know. You I, don't have to choose. I feel bad. I know. I think I think I I think I would choose. At the moment, I'm in a very amusing text exchange with Matty, so I think it would probably be Matty. Okay. Wild swimming or smoking? <gasps> I have finally given up smoking, thank God. Congratulations. I know. I found the best That's proper vape growing ever. up, isn't it? I know. It? Mm. And it doesn't hurt my lungs. Have so you got the vitamin vape or is it? Grimmie goes on about the vitamin vape, which is basically just inhaling vitamins. Is there such a thing? <laughs> yeah. Zomga. <laughs> Okay, you need yeah. to hook me up with that afterwards. Yeah. No, I've just got a normal vape, but um, but wild swimming, it gets you really... Smoking doesn't get you high. Wild swimming gets you really, really high. Yeah, I love it. Uh, okay, so the one book that you give to everyone, if you had to give one. It's tricky. I'd like to say Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own because that is such... She's such a brilliant, gossipy modern writer and I mm. often am moved to tears thinking about her and Oscar Wilde and Herman Melville who wrote um, uh, Moby Dick you know lgbtq writers in another century just they're stuck there in a time that's terrible for them but you can see them imagining a future the future that we live in where it would have been okay for them and it feels like they are communicating across the century to us going wow. i wish i was there with you yeah. but it probably would be adrian mole because i think it's it for every i read it first when i was 12 and adrian to me at 13 seemed very sophisticated and together yeah and then i read it again in my 30s when i was a mum and i was like no now my favorite character is Pauline Molly's mum she's this yeah. brilliant radical feminist like she's awesome why didn't I notice that when I was 12 and now I'm getting older it's his mum grandma Mole, just comes around writes a check sorts everything out <laughs> texts the dog to the vet she's got her shit on lockdown so there's a, there's an aid and I suspect I'll end up liking Burt Baxter the discussing old pensioner who eats <laughs> beetroot sandwiches and smokes <laughs> fags the best you're like 60s yeah, that'll be your I'll go Baxter guy. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay uh, I always say no to what oh anything past 11 o'clock I always say yes to. Uh, oh, a drink! It is still a drink. <laughs> when someone goes, I should we think, have I a drink? Like, should I? Should I fix some Bloody Marys for Catelyn on at like ten a.m. on a Thursday morning? Is, fr- is this Friday? This is Friday. I, yeah. Well, because I've had this thing like yesterday because the kids were home and everything's on lockdown and kind of everything's weird and stuff. And I was just suddenly at three o'clock found myself opening a bottle of wine because in my head it was Christmas. It yeah. was like, well, this is oh, people would be boozing their tits off at the moment. They really will, right? won't they? Yeah, yeah. and so, eating. Like I'm just having a packet of biscuits a day at yeah. the moment. It's like, well, the world's going to end. It feels like kind of festival schedule so i'd normally have a, a pint my first pint of cider around 11 so yeah, yeah. <laughs> perfect um the person who calls me out on my shit is my husband great i wouldn't get through the week without 
it's the combination of Wi-Fi and hot water. If I can have a hot bath and I can get online, then I can deal with anything. This is why I can never go camping again. Just kind of, yeah. there are no baths and there is no Wi-Fi, so it's no to tense to me. And last one, you don't know this about me, but I'm very good at... We've done the cheese lollipops. No, I'm very good at town planning. If I ever had to <laughs> give up... If I, if I ever had to give up my job, and I couldn't do any aspect of it, no stand-up or writing or anything... I would plan towns. I have so many. Uh, I do so much research on on public transport networks that work properly for women. So women, so men, the way that public transport networks are, are designed is for men to commute every day from their home in the suburbs to the centre of town. Right. But the way that women use public transport is they tend to move sideways through neighbourhoods. They'll go and drop their kids off, then they'll go and visit an elderly relative, then they'll right. pick up some shopping. They move sideways, but public transport isn't there, so they're constantly having to transfer from yeah, bus to bus. I can't bus. go across. I couldn't get to your house. Yeah. Like, I have to go into town and all the way out. Totally. And it's because yeah. it's planned by men. Like yeah. There's all these. There's an amazing book at the moment by Caroline Criado-Perez called um, Invisible Women, right. The Data Gap, um, that just shows that this is a world that is invented for men, not women. And like, the idea of women building a town that work for women fascinates me so if there's a tech billionaire out there who wants to sit down with me and we could build a town from scratch with me as the town planner i would love to do that oh my god i love it <laughs> moran town <laughs> come and live in moran town cider from 11 o'clock and buses that go everywhere <laughs> Karen, thank you oh my pleasure thank you <laughs> How lovely to spend some time with Catelyn Moran. What a woman. What a woman, I think we'll all agree. I'm very excited to read all her new books. Some little uh, references for you there. If you do um, want to have a look at some of the porn that she was recommending, it is Cindy Gallup. That is the name, Cindy Gallup. And it's Make Love, Not Porn. Um, And then also do please go and read her books if you haven't already. Uh, How to Be a Woman, obviously, is the the kind of original one that really broke her as as this kind of writer that she is. And then there's a kind of trilogy of books after that. And then you must go and see her film, How to Build a Girl is the name of the film. And that's dropping, as I said, this month. Also, go check her on Twitter. It's Catelyn Moran, C-A-I-T-L-I-N-M-O-R-A-N. Also, come and say hello to me on Twitter and Instagram. It's Annie Mac at Annie Mac. And let me know what you thought of this episode, please. I want all the discussions, all the all the debriefs. Um, let's have a chat about it. And yeah, I loved what Catelyn said at the end in terms of affecting change. It's a very simple thing that we can all do, especially when it comes to social media, which is stop being so angry take a breath try and think of that other person as a human being sitting beside you and try and have a reasonable measured conversation with them it's the idea of peace only being able to be achieved if you can understand the other person it's about understanding making an effort to understand and the idea of uh, not everything having to be so binary so black and white there's nuances to every debate to every argument so yeah so big up Catlin Moran for reminding us of that very very important point this podcast is produced by Abby Hollick at Rethink Audio and I am going to be back next week with a wonderful guest she is one of our most treasured pop stars her name is Robin she is Swedish I had a conversation with her in her apartment in Stockholm and we really had it out for for a good hour and you're going to be hearing that on the show next week I can't wait for you to hear that also if you enjoyed this episode do go back to my last podcast Finding Annie there's some episodes on there that you would probably really like if you like this one I would say notably the Jessie Ware one about parenting 
and the Sharon Horgan one, uh, which is pretty deep as well. So go check those two. And as we said, Robin up next week. Thank you so much. Thank you.